Those drums drown out the yuppies And the ones who couldn't dream Cause the freedom music gave them Was worth more than anything They don't know What they got Till it's gone Like it or not Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by the star of our show, Sal Marinello, and this is The Hot Corner with Coach Sal. That was a little Zach Brown band right there. I give credit to Kevin Kern, and Kevin sends me stuff all the time throughout the week, as all you guys do. And he sent me a song that he heard the other day. That was a great lyrics, great music, and so we've used it on the show this week. And a little tribute to Zach Brown right there, who I got to meet, uh, I think it was four or five years back. He runs a great camp in Georgia for underprivileged kids, and Sick Kids, which actually kind of plays into our show a little bit today. But before we start, um, and I say hello to my friend Sal here, I want to just thank our 16,400, almost 500 subscribers as of today. Please continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, and so that we can attack the analytics of podcasting, make sure you rate and review. Uh, we got to get that done. That way we can continue to provide you great talent and great content here, like we have with Sal's show. Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher is where you can stream us. If you have a different device, let us know. We will subscribe to that as well. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We engage our fans one live question a day, but we get back to everybody. 379 questions today. Um, We hit one on soccer and basketball that was really – someone asked me a question that was bothering me, so I got to ask the question back to the audience today. We're in 72 countries now, grassroots all the way to MLB front offices. Just trying to build better baseball IQs, and I think you do that every week, Sal. Sal, welcome back to your show. Hey, Dave. Okay. Again, I say it every week. Can't believe it's a week again. I know it's a, maybe a day short of a week, but still time's flying, man. Yeah, and um, because of all the insanity, and we're going to hit on some of it right away with your show, I'm going to throw some numbers at you. You, you always give me uh, homework and preparation, which I love for the show, and it keeps me focused on where your mind is at in terms of your vocation and what you want to get across um, but uh, a little bit on the the uh, craziness that's going on in our sports world and it's parallel to our life. We're going to bring back our roundtable that made us so popular in the beginning. I think it's time. So that'll be coming back to our audience in May. So you help make that popular as well. So I wanted to get that out there. Awesome. Um, but uh, episode 168 today, uh, you sent a great article uh, on uh, was it Kennedy, uh, Robert Kennedy. Junior, yep, running for president. Uh, talked about our we're the sickest generation and the the sickest population on earth. I think he said, and four point three trillion in healthcare. We spend eighty four of it on chronic disease. You hit on that every week with our audience. In the forties and fifties and sixty six percent of our population was um, considered chronic disease uh, stricken. In eighty eight, it was twelve, and in two thousand six, I guess it was fifty four percent. And something we chatted about before the show, autism, was at a rate of 1 in 10,000, I believe, um, and, and it was 89. And then nowadays, we're at 1 in 34 people have autism. And I guess the open-ended question, I'll let you start where you want to start. What the heck happened? Well, I, I you know, I was to- talking to a really good friend of mine just a little while ago. And, you know, when this phrase, you know, I'm always hesitant to buy in and start using the phrase of the week or the phrase of the day. And when I first heard the phrase gaslight, gaslighting, uh, I just didn't, it didn't make sense to me. I wasn't paying attention. Like I said, sometimes I reflect, reflexively turn away from stuff like that because I find maybe people 
maybe, not maybe, too many people use those terms without understanding them. And maybe I was just too lazy to look into it. And I don't want to go into the whole origin of it, but it's you're being lied to, basically, to the point where, you know, it's, there, there's an old joke, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Uh, there's this there's this situation we're being told things that are 180 percent or 180 degrees, I should say, opposed to reality. And we've talked about it on the show, like you said, about diabetes and obesity, type two diabetes in particular and obesity and how their runaway rates were experiencing runaway rates in them to the point now where we're getting obesity classified as a disease and we're getting drugs being used to treat both type 2 diabetes and obesity. But now type 2 diabetes, type 2 diabetics are being kind of pushed to the back and they're aiming all this ammo in the form of pharmaceutical treatments to the obese because there's twice as many obese as there are type 2 diabetes. Now, those type, those obese people will become type 2 diabetes people. So there's kind of a cottage industry there that the pharmaceutical market can can foster, but they're trying to get to them before they get to be the type 2 diabetics. See, the pharmaceutical industry is now so greedy, they figured, hey, we've got a gullible governmental class. We have a, a government, uh, uh, sorry, a, gov- a gullible public health class that's now going to get behind this movement. And uh, actually, our doctors are behind it, too. You have they have to we have them to blame. Doctors are now going to be the pushers of these drugs. They're now the ones that are going to sign those little pieces of paper that allows the person who's too lazy to eat properly and take an interest in their own well-being. They're going to write that little piece of paper. It says Ozempic. It says Manjaro. Whatever the new drug is going to be, you could go to your pharmacist and now get that magical little drug that you're going to inject into your belly fat that's going to turn your life around. It's not going to have anything to do with you taking responsibility. It's now going to be this drug that's going to fix you. And we've had 50, 60 years to know that this is not going to work, but we're still being led down that path and we're being gaslit all the way. Yeah. And in the article, 1989 or 8889 seems to be the target date. I think that's the the year that uh, a lot of this blew up. Was there any, anything specific that happened at that, that time that I think, well, I'm not, again, I'm not an expert. I believe Kennedy's position has been that there was an increase or a change to the vaccination uh, routine regimen that has exposed kids to these massive loads in the vaccinations that have somehow caused this response. You know, again, I, uh, it's amazing to think as I'm 10 years older than you, Dave, there were never, uh, and the town I grew up in had a, had we had special ed, but it was not of the autism Asperger's type. It was special ed was considered. It was more uh, kids who had physical issues than it was emotional issues. We didn't really see that as much. It was a very um, and a pretty big school system, very small select group that you would see. And now massive amounts of uh, of effort and money and resources are being devoted to this. Um, part of the, of our young population. So it's, it's just, again, to think that autism went from one in 10,000 to one in every 34 yeah. right there is just a massive shift of resources and effort in our school systems. Oh, it's, it's amazing. And I, 
yeah, I, I marveled at that number itself. That was, they all stood out, but that one in itself just, uh, I mean, knocks you right off your, your, knocks you right on your rear end. And the vaccination regimen is what, what you said. We've obviously gone through that with, with COVID. Um, t- the statement of we're the sickest population on the planet, he said. So, well, I mean, yeah, he, what he's doing is he's looking at the amount spent on health care and then uh, okay. the outcome of, uh, you know, we have the amount that we've spent on health care, which is more than any other country. And we don't have good outcomes from that. So how about make the parallel to baseball? You have a $200 million payroll and you can't make the postseason. That's a pretty good example. And that's a pretty good way of tying in what we have here in our public health to uh, something that is a little less serious, but we're all familiar with. If your team year after year, I can think of, of a couple of teams like that were or right in your backyard that are close to me uh, that spend an awful lot of money and don't have a lot of postseason wins to show for it. Meanwhile, something that really matters is our health, and you you have the same thing going on with much worse repercussions, much worse consequences. Yeah, four point three trillion. That's pretty close to the and, and, and that's going and eighty five percent of that. That's over three quarters of it is going towards treating. Chronic disease. So chronic disease, again, is type 2 diabetes right in there. They now are going to put obesity. I guarantee you obesity will be shifted into that category, which is going to make those numbers worse. Yeah. And and don't and people obviously do your own research, but that goes back to what we chat, we chat about all the time is that medicine is a business. It's not back in the 40s and 50s where there were you know house calls and doctors came came to you and it was about preventing as opposed to you know, solving the issues we're having right now. Um, so, I mean, if you look at that number, you take that concept of these outcomes and, and what that chronic disease number is, people need to go back and look at our history, our health history. We didn't have these problems the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And we talked about this last week, I think, or or week before. I had seen that meme that I still have to go try to find that basically said meat and dairy fed and grew society, grew civilizations for thousands of years. And now in the last hundred years, we're going to be told that that's the cause of our downfall. Well, that's flat out BS, because if you look at the numbers, what happened in the 70s that started this trend towards this massive explosion of chronic disease? The, The 70s is when we had this nonsensical pursuit of the the non-fat diet that started in the late 50s with Eisenhower's heart problems and the misguided attempt to tie consumption of fat to saturated fat to heart disease and other uh, other health issues when on the other it's actually the exact opposite Uh, animal products and dairy actually are the real superfoods we have at, at, in our grocery stores. Uh, I've talked about this before. There is no such thing as a superfood. That is a marketing term. However, most of the things, the vast majority of things we've been told are superfoods are not even close to what you could consider to be a superfood because they just don't have enough caloric density to be that. You, you would have to eat so much kale, so many blueberries, so many of these other seeds that they claim to be superfoods, you'd have to eat so much of it to get any kind of benefit versus eating 
Now, I'm not a liver fan, but eating liver, eating red meat, eating sardines, those are the true superfoods. Yeah. So in the, in the 70s, we started this diet where we're told not to eat fat. And geez, what happens? By 2006, chronic disease rates went from 6% to 54%, and it's continuing in that direction. We got fatter. We got fatter, um, ironically. What about the parallel to the, you know, looking at the children, the demise of phys ed or the de-emphasis of phys ed in the schools? Anything to do with it in that regard? Oh, of course. It's all part and parcel. It's actually, if it, do you want to say this was a plan? But it's as if someone sat down at some point and said, what is the roadmap? What is our, our plan to make people as unhealthy as possible, as fast as possible? And it looks like whether it was by plan or whether it was serendipity, they figured it out. It's eat a, a low fat diet, eat a high processed food diet, and cut down on your exercise. What could go wrong what, with advice like that? <laughs> Not much, right? Not much. It's $4.3 trillion worth wrong. So low fat, high process, and then low, what was you say, low movement? Low, no exercise, low cutting out exercise. You know, you go watch your local, I, I think a great indication of your local school system's performance is go watch a phys ed class for your youngest group and see what they're doing. And then look at the middle school. Usually by the time they get to high school, gym is, is a joke. Uh, I'm not going to make many fans amongst the phys ed group in this, but if you go and look at a high school phys ed teacher, what they have to do versus a teacher that's teaching another subjects inside the building, it's hard to believe they're treated uh, on the same level. I'm not saying all phys ed teachers, but I've seen phys ed departments that have kids walk laps, sit in the stands, don't do anything, and they're getting paid the same amount as that history teacher, that math teacher who's busting their chops to try to help those kids learn so they could get into college. Yeah. And it's, it's like all classrooms. And, and again, not, not that we're banging on teachers here, but uh, teachers have to teach the lowest common denominator in their class. So when we're talking history or English, you know, they have to judge that, but when we're talking phys ed and you can throw the numbers out, like we're mentioning walking a lap seems to be in my mind, looks probably to be too strenuous for some of these, these kids out there. Well, you know, Dave, there was a movement and I was aware of it because it was when I was in school and it was with people who I knew that were involved in our educational system here in the town I grew up that were trying to diminish the role of, of rewarding phys ed, rewarding students that excelled in phys ed because it was unfair to the kids that were not as well versed in that area. But at the same time, they didn't do anything in the classroom, at least at that point, to pull down the achievers in the classroom. As a matter of fact, the system I'm in, I went to that I, where my business is still located is and has been recognized as one of the top schools in the country for 40 years. With the sliding scale, I don't know how much that counts for, but it's still recognized. When I was in school, the, the, the phys ed stuff to me was easy, but thankfully we had the academic side that put that same demand on me. And I'll tell you another thing. On the phys ed side, while I was still in what was called junior high through ninth grade, I know for a fact there were kids in our group, in our phys ed group, that wound up participating in sports and actually were really good high school athletes because of what our phys ed program for, did for them. Just like 
my academic program here had me in the mix to be an Ivy League student and then ultimately go to a very good college university in Lehigh University that was easy for me to get in because we had the academic rigor as well as the athletic and physical ed- education rigor. So there's a great example of one driving the other and how you're creating and giving these kids an opportunity. You're creating an environment to give these kids an opportunity to succeed on both paths. We're not seeing that anymore. Yeah. And I mean, is it just learned helplessness, do you think? Or is there an agenda? Because we do know academics is a little bit of a bureaucracy like medicine. I think it's a I think there is a big disconnect between the academicians and the athletics. I think part of it is you could blame the athletic side for arrogance and um, being the bully with how much money they bring in. But at the same time, the money that those athletic departments bring in, at least at the college level, are responsible for the schools having those nice buildings so that professors could raise their salaries, get more students to go to the school, and uh, everyone makes more money, and they have more prestige, and and it's a a beneficial cycle. It's not a vicious cycle. So I think, you know, I think there's a lot. That's a, a very complex issue, but I think there's a jealousy between academics and athletics. And I don't think it's a mystery and I don't think it's a secret. Oh, I, I mean, I've, I've been in the middle of it. And one thing I learned being on the athletic side of the college world, um, I actually, at one of my stops where I was a head coach, division one level, we would bring in some of the academic programs so they could learn, uh, most of it was the education department. They could learn how I prepared a curriculum for my basketball program. And for baseball also, and just here's how I do a daily plan. Here's my weekly. Here's how it builds into the monthly. And here's how it goes over four plus years. And uh, we use that as a teaching point to kind of bridge that gap that you're talking about the show. Hey, we're teachers too. And uh, we, we actually opened up our facility so intramurals could use it. So the regular students could use it. Because there was one thing that I found out right away of becoming a head coach. There's only one program that makes money on campus and that's football. And every other program exists, men's basketball inclusion for the most part. Um, but there's no other program on campuses that exist on their own without football. And that goes for history departments, libraries, and basketball programs. So um, we're all we're all in the same – we all should know we're in the same boat. We're all beholden to, to football in that regard. And you know what? You don't have to like it, but that's the reality. If you could come up with a better system or if a better system could have been designed, it, it would – with all the – right people at that level, it would have, or at least you would see it in practice someplace. The, I've seen it work. My son went to Clemson University, went to the, uh, was a civil, is a civil engineer, graduated, was a great program, got a great job. When we went, I'll never forget, we went for freshman orienta- orientation and the head of the engineering school spent a lot of time with the parents that weekend. And he couldn't say enough about what the athletics program, and we know what that euphemism is, really means what, what the athletics program did for the school. He said, it allows me to be the best teacher I could be. It allows us to attract the best student we can attract. And it builds all these nice buildings and gives us all these nice lecture halls that we can do our work and we could get all these great students. So you, you look at the University of Alabama, what they've done there. I saw some statistics about what happened since Nick Saban got there. You know, what people don't look at this number, there was a, a, a 
huge uptick in out-of-state students that have started to attend the University of Alabama since Nick Saban got there. Uh, Dave, you have younger kids, but do you know the big difference between in-state in and out-of-state? Oh, witness? yeah, because when you're when my first Division One head coaching job was at a state university, and um, they show you the breakdowns. To, to bring in an in-state kid is half the money scholarship-wise as it is to bring an out-of-state kid in for the most part. So Alabama at the time when this was the the in-state at the time Nick Saban got there the in-state student was paying 11,000 the out-of-state was paying 38,000 and I believe they had an out-of-state number below 20%. Now I think that they've almost they haven't flipped that but I believe there's a, a, upwards of 35 to 40% out-of-state students that now go to Alabama. Yeah. So that, that that's a, right there that income stream and and I'm sure it's not thirty eight thousand anymore because it's been a while. Most well, of those I mean, big universities are high forties to low fifties for out of state. Yeah, I mean you're you're looking now because we deal with kids um, with the the business we run with one on one with helping kids get scholarships. Some of these higher academic schools or these higher profile schools, you're looking in you're looking in the high sixties to low seventy range right now for, for a state university. Um. Because I think Michigan, Texas, those are still pretty expensive. Yeah, they're they're expensive. Yeah, and then um, for some of the private ones, God, you're getting close to eighty now. Oh yeah, absolutely. The Patriot League, you're you're in the you're over seventy, I think, in every one of them. Yeah. So it's uh, very. I guess the chairs must have got a lot better since we were there. They, they're yeah, it's a little sturdier. No, but that's the, I used to get asked that question all the time. Anytime they would add something to athletics, and it would be given to football. Out of courtesy, they would ask, and I would say, "Give them as much as they want." I right. care. Give them every because every time we had a visit up, it was during a football game, football weekend. So we utilized football that way. Anytime we brought kids on campus to show them the the weight room, football built that weight room, and we got one too. Football helped build our locker rooms. Football, I mean, was that the only the only request I did have was that this was the only time I would ever get maybe stand up and say, "No, nah, I'd, I'd like to battle that." So as long as I'm not playing our football program on our schedule, they can get whatever they want. As long as, if it helped keep me toward the top of our conference, that's all I worried about. Keep me at the top of the teams that we're playing against. Do so I have the same amenities or uh, at least the same or close? Yeah, give you a shot, right? Give you a yeah, shot to compete. Fine. And give, give football everything they want. Um, so, yeah, I'm for that. It's probably a little counter to most coaches because everybody's always fighting to get theirs. And certainly academics, the guy that was teaching your kids at Clemson, um, certainly got it because he's right on the money. And anytime a team makes a bowl game, even the you know even basketball, it, it builds enrollment. All of a sudden, you'll see enrollment jump um, because they saw him on ESPN or they saw him on you know some national bowl game. So I would say, uh, like I said, I went to Lehigh. I had uh, one of my really good friends growing up here in high school, and also we went to college together. And he was very involved. Uh, continued to be was one of the major benefactors at the school was actually president of Lehigh for a year. He told me when Lehigh beat Duke in the basketball tournament, the one year, their applications in the next year went up, I believe 40%. So if, again, if you don't think that raises the level of student that can go to a, a university, r regardless of where they are, Lehigh was already a top tier private school that to have that many more kids to choose from just gives you a shot to increase and improve your your student body it, it happens at all those other schools too and it, it it has happened again we hear stories all the time now because everyone knows vin went to clemson 
and my other two guys want you know considered it and got in that um there's a lot of kids that can't get in that even as recently as four or five years ago would have been shoe-ins to get in just because it's harder because there's more competition so um so that 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 we kind of get off on a tangent with that with the um but i i think that's to bring it back, Dave, to bring it back to this performance issue, if you're doing the right job, you you look at how those schools are run, you could disagree with how they did it, but it's obviously a successful program. What we talked about here with our public health, we're on the opposite end of that. We have these massive numbers of neurological issues, too. It's not even something like obesity, Dave, which they, they have changed some numbers to make someone obese that maybe 10 years ago wouldn't quite have been considered obese. So that, that is, that is still, um, that is still a minor part of this explosion. You're talking about these neurological diseases and these neurodevelopmental disorders that we see such as ADD, ADHD, all kinds of, all kinds of issues with language, Tourette's, stuff about we mentioned autism so it's it's just crazy to think that there's this point in time which everyone seems to recognize as 1989 uh, and and since since then we've got this massive problem that has been created and it doesn't seem like the people in charge either want to fix it or know how to fix it yeah no you're you're uh i think well it's a business whoever's making money is going to keep the problem go because we say the phrase every week, there's a, there's a lot of money to be made in confusion. And when problems get solved, you'll see a lot of these non-for-profits um, shut their doors because they have they exist in government programs. They exist when there's problems. And so maybe so would you say that maybe the college model is not so bad because what they're doing is ultimately resulting in a better product. And at the same time, we're looking at this our, let's say our, I'm going to, I don't know if anyone's used this, but our pharmaceutical cult, culture where we now have drugs for all kinds of things, but we're, we're less healthy. So which would you rather be? Which model do you think is the better model to follow? Yeah, no, it's, I'm, I pulled up an article as, as we were talking about, because I thought about Gonzaga when you're talking about the university model and Mark Few is the Gonzaga men's basketball coach. And they were in 98, I believe. They were, they were pretty close to closing their doors. Uh, they had less than 500 students enrolled in their freshman class, and they had a couple million dollars deficit. They were about ready to cut the athletic department by 30 jobs, making basketball part-time. How about that for a D1? Wow. Mark Few comes in, and now um, each year they keep rolling up admissions a bit, but they're still a small school. I mean, you're still talking about, you know, people don't realize that's about a 4,000-student school, I believe. Um, but uh, they're considered a... You know, they're going to be going into the Big 12 next year. So that's considered a power five school now. And you look back 25 years ago, as we're, you know, looking back to this study 25 years ago, we're looking at, uh, you know, 12% chronic disease. And now we're at 54. And Gazaga, the university models we're talking about going just the opposite. Their enrollment keeps kind of rolling, rolling, rolling. And they're making a ton of money over there with basketball because that is not a football school, obviously. So no, and I think it's just interesting. There you have two models we've looked at. One's resulted in this destruction of our health and the other has resulted in this massive. Now we could argue who's getting the money, but it's, it's been successful because the school's successful. The kids who go there have a good experience and can go on and make, have a chance to make their own successes. 
So I think it's a pretty good model, and I think it, it stands in stark contrast to this disaster that's our public health, um, what do you want to call it, uh, industry, which has put us more people on drugs. You know, Dave, I had this recent thing with my infection, and it's funny, at my age of 60, they couldn't get over. There were no prescription drugs that I took, and I, I just think that's a good thing, and I think it goes back to what we – what we've been saying, more people need to take more interest in taking care of themselves and not be so willing to go on drugs. I had a doctor 20 years ago that wanted me to go on a statin because my cholesterol was 205 or 215 because they just had reclassified what high cholesterol was. And despite the fact that my cholesterol hadn't changed in 10 years. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, I can't tell you how many, how many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of, men and women went through that and have been taking a needless prescription drug, which has caused all kinds of seen and unseen problems since. I just had to fill out a waiver for this event we're going to NCA waiver. And it had like four lines for, you know, prescription drugs that you're on. I left a blank. Obviously I've never taken any either. And then the little thing at the bottom, please use back if necessary. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. Um, so there, there is obviously an issue. I didn't think about that till we started doing the show today. I had that little side note. So I just filled it out this morning. But uh, yeah, I've never taken any either. And they just keep lowering the, you know, moving the goalposts so that people have to take it. Well, in my life, you know, I've, ta- I've taken, you know, short term, you know, I was an asthmatic as a kid, took asthma medications. I've, I have at some point in my life, short term taken antibiotics. But again, I'm not on anything on a regular basis. I know people that carry that little pill thing around with them that has their six or seven pills for the day and they're not even vitamins or or supplements those are prescription drugs so you know that's one of the big bugaboos we talked about it i think on one of our past shows about the sleeping pills how how bad they are and how they become just a part of everyday life and people thinking that's just a normal thing to need we haven't even gotten into the sleep and and eating issues that are created by or that are feeding off each other that are created by poor health, being obese, being a type two diabetic, eating incorrectly. We haven't even gotten to that. You, when is, is my correct in saying that we digest when we sleep and the better we eat, the more rest we get. Is that, am I oversimplifying it when I well, say I that? Think, I, I think so. I think you, you know, you don't want to go to bed on a full stomach. I mean, if that's, yeah. that's not the case. We talked about it, about this, the whole, this intermittent fast fad, which really is just nothing other than what we were told as a kid. Don't eat anything. You know, at 10 o'clock, if you were digging around in the snack box, your mom was going to get mad at you because usually it was dinner and then you were doing dessert and it was done by 8 o'clock and you didn't eat anything until the next morning when you went off to school. What's your fixed time? When, when, and then should it adjust with age? Like what's a good time to stop eating based on, I guess, it's, I guess it's relative as to when you go to bed. But. Well, I think, I think it's also what you can tolerate. And my schedule, because sometimes I work late and I don't have the opportunity to eat what I want to eat when I want to eat. Sometimes I have to eat a little later. Usually what I'll do, Dave, is I'll try to eat something. I'm a pretty good person. I have a lot of options with my supplements that I'll use. I have protein powder. I have protein drinks. I have a variety of, I have not a variety, I have a couple of you know, energy, a protein bar slash cookies that I use that are high protein, low and processed. I, I think I mentioned one of them on one of the shows. So what I'll try to do, or I'll eat my lunch later. I always have a, 
I have sardines in cans where I work. I have I buy the tuna not in a can, but they make tuna now. They sell tuna now in a pouch, so you don't need a can opener. It doesn't come with all the uh, with a lot of the the liquid that's in a typical can. So I have, and and then that one bag is thirty two grams of protein. A, a typical can of sardines is around twenty two to twenty five grams of protein. So if I have that spaced out through the day, I will eat a little later than um, the, the average person and probably than what would be ideal. But that's fine. It doesn't have any adverse effect. My body comp is great. My body weight is great. So I don't really see much of an issue. I think there's got to be a lot of personal preference and personal level of comfort with how you feel um, both when you eat in relationship to when you work out and when you go to bed. Yeah, I guess that's a great, great point because we we often talk about not having a cookie cutter approach to anything. So that's a good answer to it. Now, I, I took you all over the world today. We, we, we started out with chronic disease. I want to make sure, did you get everything you needed to get in? With oh, that? I think we went, yeah, I think we went way off on that. And then um, we, we, we had no plans going into the education. I thought that was a good good segue and, and parallel to it. What about in that regard? Because I've got a problem I want you to try to solve today. All right, go ahead. Let's you go with that. Good with the education part we gave. I'll I'll try. If no, I don't I, know, I, I'm not proud. I'll tell you I don't know. No, no. I mean with what we covered on as far as the education model as it compares to. The, oh yeah, no, I agree. I think that you know I that wasn't an argument or a discussion I had ever kind of thought about, but when you look at it, I think it kind of is a pretty interesting comparison. One complete failure, and one that's actually pretty successful. Yeah. Yeah, and I I, uh, I think it's a good a good parallel because obviously we're a sports podcast here. Okay, so as you know, with part of the show, I answer a question every day on Facebook, and somebody asked you know hundreds of questions, but the one I decided to answer today, someone asked me, "What is a sports phenomenon that just baffles you?" And I don't know which direction they wanted me to go because it's kind of general, and I hope I didn't disappoint them, but we did get a lot of traction on it. Um, my answer was, at the, and I'll read it verbatim, at the risk of sounding Seinfeld-esque, we, you and I talked about Seinfeld before the show, ironically. Yeah. My question is, what is the deal with soccer? Um, and I, I kind of called out our soccer friends out there, and you know, we have a lot of two-sport athletes and people that follow us. So my quandary is, is kind of threefold. I know there's a difference. I compare it to basketball because the movements are similar to me anyway because of my limited scope of the world. But I get I – get, I'm baffled that in a basketball game, you see 160 to 200 points by both teams combined. Uh, you know, you go down levels to high school, youth games, it could be 40 to 100. But when you look at soccer, you're looking at, you know, five to six goals, maybe on a high scoring game. And in the obvious, I didn't want someone to jump on it and be points. I understand that basketball counts in one, twos and threes and soccer by one. So I didn't want someone to get away with just the obvious. But this is I asked the audience to help me so I could appreciate the game more. So. My three main points for you, Sal, I'm at soccer games or I happen to click on TV. I'm amazed at how crowds get so excited when a shot almost goes in, like almost goes in, doesn't have to go in. And I can't believe it when a good shooter misses. It's like the fans want to tear each other's hair out. They, they're, they're almost belligerent. They can't believe that he missed. Um, that was one. And I'll let you take on whatever one you want. Two is that soccer fans accept so few shots taken on goal. In basketball, you get about 80, maybe more per game. And I understand at one time, you know, basketball didn't have a shot clock. Soccer doesn't. My question was, could we add a shot clock to soccer? Would that help? And then my third one, this was the biggest one. In basketball, roughly two basketballs fit into the rim side by side. I think that's plenty. 
And I'm disappointed every time the ball doesn't go in. You hear me get, get on my daughter's and my son's back. Like, how do you miss? There's two of those things fit in there. Now in soccer, regulation goal, that's 24 by eight. You can stack 363 soccer balls inside the opening of a soccer net. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, balls wide. That You have 363 finite chances to score in a game of soccer. How in the world does a shooter, I'm not talking about scoring, how do you miss the goal? Um, and why does the crowd get so excited? Shouldn't they be pissed? So that, and then I threw in the thing about offsides, which I don't get in soccer. I think it's silly that, you know, they, they you can't outrun the last defender. You almost got to be slower. So that's my quandary of the day. You can see I got a complex world going on in my head right there. Yeah. Uh, I want to know who figured out the, the amount of soccer balls to fit in a goal. Was that you? Oh, no. I, I uh, Googled that. You looked it up. Okay. So someone did figure that out. Yeah, but it was- I'm not that bored. Bro. Okay. Um, well, I like your point, too, about the shot clock. And I'll tell you something. I'm not a soccer expert, but I I will admit I did enjoy watching a lot of the World Cup. And I thought that the most interesting parts of the game, of the games, were when a team needed to win and couldn't be satisfied with the tie to continue on, whether it was to the next round or to get a point that was going to help them in the standings. I think, and I don't know if many soccer purists would agree, but I'm going to I'm not really trying to offend. Maybe it's my ignorance of the sport. However, I would think without even necessarily needing to change any of the existing rules about how you play the game, my question, I know you're not supposed to ask a que- answer a question with another question, but I did. A, a better soccer guy than myself or a, better, a really expert soccer person, is there a way to change the way the game is um, – uh, the, the way to change it so that ties are not rewarded – that tying in the sense of it helping you advance isn't rewarded? Or is it an, an inevitability of the game that you need to deal with that unless you're doing something, which was my thought, Dave, during the World Cup, if you added a shot clock? Uh, the shot clock has made lacrosse a much more interesting game to watch. As a matter of fact, so the shot clock, uh, lacrosse has gone through a couple of changes with the rules. It used to be you had X amount of time, I believe it was 20 seconds to get the ball across the midfield and what was called into the restraining line, which uh, into across the restraining line, which set up, quote, the box on the field where that was, you get it in the box. You say, get it in the box, get a touch. What they they tried to do a bunch of different things. They left some discretion to the referees if a team was stalling or not. And they changed that. And now they have a shot clock, which is great. Possession changes. It's 80 seconds. You have to get the ball down. You have to either get the ball to touch the goalies. If the I'm sorry. If the goalie touches the ball on a shot and you maintain possession, the shot goes to 60. Or if it touches any part of the goal and you maintain possession, it goes to 60. So it forces this quicker pace without getting tied up in the nonsense of getting the ball over in a certain amount of time rather than just having 80 seconds to shoot. I think that would help soccer. I think those guys at the top level and the women at the top level are so athletic, it does a disservice to them to let them kick the ball around, move backwards. I think it would be much more exciting if they could – keep it moving forward. And I do think the shot clock would be one thing that would make it better. Yeah. And there's clocks and everything. Now, obviously we saw one in baseball this year with the pitchers that we've debated uh, with all of, with all of our shows. 
shot clock in basketball, you know, it's different at every level, 24 in the NBA. I had a, a, a soccer friend of mine who I actually called out on the Facebook because he's the one that kind of got me in the soccer to know enough to where I can be bothered by stuff. So <laughs> I blamed it on him. And he, he responded with, with a good one. He's been responding all day, uh, kind of keeping the Facebook post in check. But it's, uh, he said, Dave, my, my best thought for you is soccer is a game played without using your hands. Everyone discusses hand-eye coordination in every sport we play, yet foot-eye coordination isn't even on the radar. What, what's your thoughts on that? Well, it's, it, it, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, it, it, it's just as important as hand-eye. Think about some of the things those players can do. I saw a clip on Instagram. Again, I'm not a soccer expert, so it doesn't resonate with me like the Willie, Matt, Willie Mays catch of Vic Wirtz or some of the other great catches you've seen. But it was this penalty kick where it was from way out, but it was one of those situations where the other team can have a wall of players and – where the ball was and where the goal was and where the guy was kicking it from, you're like, there's no way that ball's getting in because the goalie should be able to save it. And the ball does this. I can't even describe the amount of curve the guy was able to kick it with to get it into the goal. So that, that's all massively difficult. It's just we I think there's a, a huge cultural component that we don't get. Yeah. Now, you make a point a lot with working out and. Ted Kubiak makes this with fielding a baseball. If people watch basketball and get into it, all these dribbling drills, if people watch Pete Newell and what he says about basketball. Um, and again, what you say about, about working out when you're in, in one of these sports, people spend so much time on these peripheral aspects of the game, but you're on your feet hundred percent of the game. You know, if you're a great point guard, you only have the ball in your hands. You know, your team has it half the time. You probably have it 10 to 12% of the time. If you're a dominant point guard, um, you know, in baseball, obviously ground balls, your feet get you in position to use your hands, not vice versa. So, um, you know, you're on your feet 100 percent of the game. I mean, that I, I think it goes back to what you say with lifting as well and working out that you should be doing things on your feet. Oh, the, the, yeah. That to, to have a discussion with the strength coach or athletic development coach where you have to tell them they should their athletes shouldn't be in a seated position. And for the most part on their feet, 80%, 90% of the time, to have that discussion with someone would be like, I, I don't know, trying to talk to someone. I can't even think of an, an equivalent. It's, it's so, if you're, if you're having a discussion with someone who supposedly knows what they're doing in the field and they're going to have their athletes in a leg extension, leg curl, leg press machine or any uh, Smith machine, any other machine, it, it's not worth having a discussion with them. Yeah. What, what about this? Here's something simple. We talk about practical things kids can do for, let's say, foot uh, eye coordination. This was used a lot. I saw kids playing this in, in, when I was in high school all the time. I never got involved. But as a college and pro athlete, I started using it just to kind of keep myself sharp because you could pack it real simply. But a hacky sack. Well, this, yeah, that would be that's a great carryover. And if you read anything about soccer skill acquisition and why the Brazilians were so dominant it was from futsal because they were forced to play in a smaller court smaller area on a faster surface so what did they do they were forced to react quicker their reaction time their hand eye their foot eye coordination got better because they had to do it in a short in a in enclosed space and had less time to make those decisions to make those moves so be a great uh 
way to develop foot-eye coordination is a great way. That's probably why I have a hard transition to soccer because that's where I got introduced to soccer was futsal. And I, I, I love it. It was smaller areas, um, different surfaces, so it moved faster. Heavier ball, so you couldn't lift it like you do in soccer and boom it. Right. Um, and, and that's what I like because it had to be precision passing. And it really focused on on that foot-eye coordination um, that my friend Dave Elder pointed out very eloquently in his his, his first response was short, but he's getting longer as I speak right here. He keeps posting stuff online. So I'll have to catch up once we're off. So any other things that, I mean, let's say you as a, as a uh, performance coach, um, kid parent comes in, wants to develop that foot eye coordination. What are some things you could do with them? You know, hacky sack kids. If you don't know what hacky sack is, go look it up. It's a, I think from a standpoint of specific coordination, such as foot eye versus hand eye. I think as we've discussed on the show before, and this is a good, I think a good point to leave off on that the more coordination you could do, regardless of what it is, whatever that event is, or that movement is, that's going to increase a kid's skill level. Ultimately the ceiling of their skill level is going to be higher. So here's a, a great idea or a great um, example. If you could, I would. I don't know why all kids who play baseball don't learn how to hit from both sides. I just, I think it's a skill you can do from both sides. I don't think you have to diminish power. There's enough stories of great baseball players who had power from both sides of the plate. Basketball players need to be good with both hands. They need to be able to lay up and do certain dribble both ways. They need to be able to do things with both hands. Lacrosse is a, another very big ambidextrous sport. So why not baseball? So again, basic skills like kicking the ball, equal time spent on each foot. But things that help all of those things are basic skills like jumping rope, like skipping, complex skipping patterns. We've all heard of the karaoke when you warm up, karaoke when you warm up. There's complex patterns that go beyond that that allow you to develop your balance and your footwork that will allow you to improve your coordination. Uh, and the father and or mother of all movements is the sprint technique. So every kid should learn how to sprint properly because from sprinting, all other less intense activities will follow. So if you take a kid who's a lousy sprinter, they're going to be a less than ideal athlete, especially with agility and obviously with running. You don't ever see a bad form in a sprinter in the Olympics because those athletes know have been taught how to run properly. It's not that we need to turn our baseball players, lacrosse players, soccer players into sprinters, but we need them to learn how to sprint properly because that's going to help them navigate the field, negotiate the field better. Yeah, I know. And that's actually, that takes us really full circle. I think that's what we talked about our very first show is was sprinting technique on it. So well, that was, that was a great, and as usual, I kind of take you on twists and turns and give you a little verbal parkour. If you don't know what parkour is audience, look that up too. That up too. Yeah. I like that verbal parkour. Like it. That's my daily life right there. I, I think I live in verbal parkour. My kids call me the king of scramble. So I'm having like four or five conversations at once, but um, anything you want to leave the audience with today? I thought that was a great, great way to end it there though. Now I'm exhausted. I think that's good. I think we'll uh, have to regroup and recharge and we'll have, some more stuff for next week. 
Yeah, well, that's what my wife says when we get done talking to. She's exhausted, so <laughs> going to do that to people. Well, to our audience out there, um, this is episode 168 with the Hot Corner with Coach Sal. All 16,400 plus you guys will probably be at 500 by the end of today. Download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review so we can bust up that algorithm. Keep providing you with great content like today. Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. Those are our streaming devices. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Hit us up there. Facebook's blowing up as we're on the show right now. Uh, 72 countries, grassroots, the Major League Baseball front offices. We're hitting everybody. So we've got people listening. We're just trying to build a better baseball IQ, and in your case, a better health IQ and health conscious IQ. So uh, Sal, I appreciate what you bring to the show. Always make our audience smarter. I know I get smarter every time. And um, as I say, I, I probably asked more than one selfish question today, but so be it. Well, we had a good time and time goes by. So I'm glad that before you know it, it'll be next week and we'll have another show to do. Sounds good. So with that, we'll say goodbye with the Hot Corner with Coach Sal. Tune in next week.